What's up, everyone? Welcome to Desolation Radio with Dan and Nath. How are you? <laughs> really good. How are you? <laughs> I was waiting for my cue to jump in there. Just because you've got a headphone, you've got your headphones in. Yeah, like a professional. With like um, a... Yeah, basically, so last week we had uh, Brian, our good friend Brian Carroll, the sound engineer, sort of sit in and make everything uh, sound amazing uh, and made us feel very professional. And Nath was wearing like these sort of sound check headphones that were plugged into this mixer all the way through. And now he's just put. I was wearing VR goggles as well, just and to pretend I was somewhere else. And now you're just wearing just a like, headphone, just one head, one Tesco headphone in, just to keep. Oh it no, these are these are pretty good ones. Okay, so basically, um, we sort of we spend, I would say, ninety five percent of our time now on Twitter asking for money, mm. and we're going to spend ninety five percent of the time of the podcast begging for money. No, but our sound is, you know, if you think the sound was better last time, please go on the Patreon and chip in because both of us are absolutely broke and we can't afford to pay. 20 quid but if you like what we're doing give us a quid or something like that and we'll hopefully get a more professional cleaner sound yeah so <clears throat> last time we had uh, like two separate mics so it was easy to and unfortunately i didn't have my own mic so i was kind of regulated to uh to the periphery yeah uh, much to hugh edwards uh you know yeah thanks yeah it's like we bugged hugh edwards for like a retweet and some sort of uh praise and then he just sort of rinsed us on Twitter. Thanks, Hugh. And on the six o'clock news, what? he, he forgot one of the segments just to like properly. Hey, these these idiots from Bridgend, like uh, coming up next. Well, what I could start doing is um, to sort of really emphasise the urgency for the need for a new sound system. Stuck, and then I, and that's the end of the podcast. You know, yeah. just cut it out. Yeah, just keep. I can't do it. Like that. Yeah. All right. Um, what's been going on in Wales this week? Um, well, Labour Party have uh, d- st- uh, stuck with their claims. I mean, the manifesto of getting rid of the <laughs> tuition pay fees. cap. Oh, and the tuition yeah, fees. Yeah, they, 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 uh, they did two. Oh, that's the good two, yeah. What I, what I like, and if I may be so uh, bold as to sort of give people an insight, I think that you kind of got like a bit optimistic during the election and then you've just been... <laughs> no, it happened. The scales of... No, Cowan was like, listen, John McDonald said we're going to do it. We're definitely going to do it. But, I mean, speaking to you the last couple of days, it's like the, it's just been sheer. You've just been outraged, haven't you? Just how brazen they've been like. <laughs> I, I, don't know, I don't know. I'm just quite not surprised. It was like, oh, God, I see this was so on the nose. It's just so open, it's so open, though. Yeah, it's like, so I'm not open. a fan of Labour Party anyway. But it's like, the, I mean... It, it's this. It, it's so shameless these U-turns and the fact there's no scrutiny apart from us. Mm. Um, it's just bad. I mean, how can the BBC not see that as a story? How can well, Western Mail not see that as? How can Momentum not see that as a story? As newsworthy. Or just like yeah, ig- nah. ignore it. What else has been happening? Um, oh yeah. So on Twitter, I said I wasn't being facetious. I said like in one of my moments of introspection. This is off your personal account, mind you. Oh, yeah, that's right, yeah. So if you're not following Dan's personal account, you should. Um, don't bother with mine, don't bother with <laughs> at all. So I basically said, is there any is there any aspect of life in the UK, obviously including Wales and that, that's like my favourite reference, that is superior than any sort of developed continental country, you know, France, Germany, Spain, you know. Mosul. But, but, but you know... Um, and, it, I mean, and the reason people... I mean, the reason I asked that is because if you don't know my personal politics... I, I mean, what's the opposite of a, a patriot? Um, someone that hates. Well, yeah, it's basically someone that absolutely despises their country with a, a, just a huge intensity. And again, I, I have to say, I do include Wales in that hundred percent. But it's I just I generally have never. I mean, maybe it's because I spent a lot of time in America. I mean, I go 
to you know Europe, watching Wales. All those conferences. Uh, um, yeah, <laughs> all expensive pay conferences. Yeah. But I mean, I just don't see the. I don't. I mean, I don't see why people live in the UK. It's just. It's just got absolutely nothing going for it. Um, and the re- things that pe- the redeeming features that people tweeted in, is Indian food. Uh, indigenous um, to the UK, we, we should add. But I, you know, I do. Love, I, I, do I do love Indian food. Yeah. Um, and like, if you go to the states, you can't get it. Um, three prong plugs uh, really is like a really sort of stirring up people's sort of patriotism. Um, re- uh, what was surprised as well, people like BBC and like the radio. But it's like, firstly, you get all you break. I mean, if you're anything like me, like a happy young person with you know a savvy new consumer, you get all your breaking news and political news from Twitter. I mean, you only use TV for football. I, I get all my news off the street. Off the, yeah, you've got your ear to the street. Mm-hmm. Signed Eminem. He's triple platinum. Yeah, yeah. Um, to the street. Um, so basically, there was absolutely nothing. I mean, you can listen to... Brit- I mean, people say British ba- British music. Right? There are some amazing British bands. Um, but you can listen to... I mean, no one plays in Cardiff anyway. Like, so if I move to France... Or, Iti- or Italy. Yeah, but, you know, no one... Cardiff Council shut down all the playgrounds. <laughs> yeah, but... They? They're, but, but you would have a better chance, generally have a better chance of watching like a band from London in Europe, in Germany, whatever, than you would in Cardiff, for sure. And also you can listen to Radio 6, Radio 4, you watch BBC online. BBC World Service jumped in You there. don't actually have to be rooted to the UK to do any of these things. And people say like British pubs, I mean like what, Weatherspoons? I, I, I just don't get it. Like, uh, you do have Irish pubs abroad, don't you? Yeah, but I mean also like, pubs in Europe are great as well. Um, but I, yeah, I quite like beer, but I don't really like pubs. I just quite like, you know, it's like I like coffee you don't like coffee shops you know, mm. I don't see why you want to go and sit in a place with loads of people you don't like where you can just sit in your house you actively own. don't like people yeah but um <laughs> I, alcoholic I, anonymous I, just drink alone I just I, I just couldn't get my head around like I couldn't get my head around the fact that people actually think that the, the country has any redeeming features whatsoever I mean basically today we're going to talk about the pamphlet and if you haven't followed us on twitter um what this is it's basically the, the best thing that's probably ever been written about Wales. And that's probably because it's been written from a Marxist-Leninist perspective. It's a pamphlet called Socialism for the Welsh People by Gareth Miles and Robert Griffiths. Uh, Gareth Miles is um, basically one of the a leading Marxist writers. And he wrote, wrote in the Welsh language and he was an organiser of the... Is he still about? So yeah, he is. Trying to get on the this show. pamphlet is, was written in 1979. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, it's, it's still incredibly relevant and basically better than anything that's been written today um apart from when your book comes out no no including that I mean, oh. it's almost, um written today and in the future. so yeah so Gareth Miles was basically was the you know the national organizer of the Welsh-based teachers union um and then the other guy was Rob Griffiths who um used to be he was basically a, a full-time researcher in Plaid Cymru he's now more famously known as being the chairman of the communist party Great Britain um and as I said on Twitter, as ever, it's the communists and the Marxist-Leninists that correctly understand society. And that's no... I mean, it's like all these stupid centrist journalists never see anything coming. Like, oh, I can't believe there's an economic collapse. I can't believe, like, you know, social democratic parties have collapsed. I can't believe Corbyn won last It's because they don't read... I mean, Marxism-Leninism paves the way. It's, it's not a science per se, but it... It's such a comprehensive framework for un- for understanding and analyzing society. It's bizarre. Like it's it's it's, it's what well, I don't see why people don't read read more of it. All the answers you need are in Marx, are in Engels, are in Lenin. Anyway, cookery tips in there. <laughs> Relationship advice. Yeah, basically. Yeah. Um, it's all in there. It's a bit of a hot 
uh, like a, a mishmash in there. So what we're going to do today, we're going to explain Welsh society using our reading of this pamphlet, Socialism for the Welsh People. Explain um, using reading. Not like, an, not like an audio book, but we're going to go through each section and read at times directly because the prose is like amazing and that's how people should write pretty much. There's a couple of things I think we should note off the bat. Firstly, it's quite jarring reading it now because although it's written in 1979, it's so far to the left and so incisive compared to anything you'd see today. It really just reinforces how far to the right the public common sense has moved that you know so if you start saying things like this today although there is a definite need to be saying things like this today i mean this is far to the left of like you know corbyn far to the left of like you know plaid Cymru. um we should also preface it by saying you know this is um it contains some pretty brutal uh takedowns of plaid Cymru and some pretty uh brutal takedowns of the labor movement it gets um, personal it gets put well yeah it, so if you're triggered by those uh turn off now um okay i'm gonna start and this is the for by the way so the foreword to the pamphlet is by david ellis thomas um at the time a militant marxist with implied cymru now a lord that they didn't see that one coming if they did that like where are they now yeah. and you know, robert you know Gr- robert griffiths is like continuing to fight the good fight as communist leader of the communist party continually producing like rigorous analysis and Davel is uh was in the house of, was in the house you know in the house of lords and then he's left Plaid Cymru essentially to support the Labour government in Wales um all right so forward like filled with careerists <laughs> forward by David Ellis Thomas there's only one thing worse than political theory divorce from practice it's political practice devoid of theory the first, an autonomy of intellectual labour from material labour, leads to the kind of useless teaching so prevalent in the University of Wales. Someone got a tutu. Uh, <laughs> if, poli- <laughs> if political theory is divorced from the actual uh, making of political movements and events, it becomes academic in the worst sense of the word. In other words, you know, on the other side, politics without a critical understanding of the social system within which a political activist works becomes a sort of pragmatism that reaches reached in its heyday in. Wilson Callahan Labourism. So, so around about this, the time of the welfare state, isn't it? It's in less yeah. where it peaked. Socialism for the Welsh people is a work of two activists, Gareth Miles and Robert Griffiths. Um, the pamphlet is addressed to two typical and, in my view, equally false political positions taken by many nationalists and socialists in Wales. It challenges those Welsh nationalists who consider nationalism to be an all-embracing ideology. Nationalists of this persuasion, still dominant in Plaid Cymru, believe that the nation is, like the bourgeois image of God, above the conflict of classes, that cultural policies, in particular the survival of the subjugated linguistic group, can somehow be fought for and fulfilled without regards to the economic system. This attitude ignores the real history of modern submerged nations like Wales and the historical links between the development of the oppressive nation-states such as Britain, their imperialist role and the accumulation of capital. But this pamphlet also confronts those on the left who, in an equally unhistorical fashion, deny the existence of a Welsh nation or of cultural issues who espouse instead a dehumanised economism which seeks to propel an abstract, unhistorical working class into a new socialist dawn. There, no doubt, Welsh coal mines will still be run from London's Hobart House. Nothing better illustrates the de-radicalisation of the labour movement, with some exceptions, than its leader's law and order right-wing attitude towards Cymdeithas Iraith Cymraeg. So that means that basically when the labour government was empowered in the welfare state, they took a very punitive approach to Welsh language activists right um bit of a stirring intro um by david ellis thomas yeah rousing. enjoy it yeah it was good. um okay so the other thing i mean just 
again, continue the forward. He says, the theory to sustain a radical movement must be forged in the struggle between the democratic forces of Welsh working people and those which explicitly, or by their compromises, as they run British ruling class institutions in Wales, like the BBC, perpetuate the status quo. They perpetuate a system which not only dominates Wales, but which has a vested interest in the economic exploitation and cultural domination of starving and deprived millions in third world countries. And that, again, basically this could be written right now. He says the re- recent lurch to the right in Welsh voting behaviour indicates clearly that the self-styled Welsh radical tradition is dead. We now need vigorous self-criticism in the national movement and on the left generally. Because socialism for the Welsh people is an unsparing analysis of our real position, I'm proud to endorse it. But this pamphlet will have been pointless if it does not need to new- lead to new initiatives on the industrial and political fronts, initiatives that recognise Wales as an internal colony of British and worldwide capitalism. So, I mean, what you'll find, I mean, is that at every stage, I mean, this is quite literally everything, I believe, mm. crystallised into 20 pages. Um, all right, so it starts off, socially with Welsh people, the introduction is very rigorous sort of introduction of the capitalist system, isn't it? I mean, should we talk about that or should we just... Um, all right, so all right, here's another instant parallel. So, you know, being written in the 70s, so it basically says that, you know, um, capitalism has ceased to play a progressive role in history um, and the capitalist system, with its consecration of private property, um, it's inevitably centralised ownership and control of industry. Um Basically, it says it retards progress towards a world free from deprivation, degradation, and war. They move straight into the Welsh um, example here and you know spot the parallels with uh, present-day Wales. They say, in comparison, a small Western country like Wales does not suffer the same degree of social and economic misery as some other areas of the earth. Yet even here, we can illustrate the absurd, restrictive, and anti-human nature of capitalism. For example, throughout the 1970s, at least one Welsh house in every ten has been officially classed as unfit, with over 40,000 people on council waiting lists, while on the other hand, we have thousands of houses uninhabited, opulent holiday homes being built, luxurious but empty office blocks towering above slums, more than 10,000 construction workers unemployed, and millions of bricks stockpiled. The legal, financial and governmental shackles forged by a cruel and crazy economic system prevent us from solving one problem by solving another. To squat in a holiday cottage would be illegal. To purchase the vacant office block with public money would require enormous compensation to the owners. To employ labour and materials apparently beyond the financial capacity of private and public enterprise. The land needed for new housing might belong to some rich landlord or estate. So basically say that um, the social scars caused by bad housing and enforced idleness continue side by side when they should be healing each other. And I thought of this the other day because I was walking through Cardiff and... Um, as you go down Park Place and you get to um, where Oceana was, there's always uh, homeless lads there sort of begging, bless them. And then opposite, I hadn't realised, there are two massive vacant office blocks which have been empty for years. And oh, what what's Cardiff Council doing about those? I mean, what what is stopping, generally, what is stopping, um, the only thing stopping people being rehoused in places like that or Cardiff Council doing it firstly it's like political will and they don't really care about the rising uh, they're all, uh, they all shoot out when they it's the, um, yeah for any event but it's the profit motive I mean and they bang on if someone said like why can't we rehouse them in there oh because that building belongs to someone and it's been earmarked for luxury flats or something like that it's just a travesty alright so they also talk about the periodic crisis of capitalism which again you know is a recurring theme in Marx you know capitalism booms and then slumps it produces wealth and maintains poverty. It manufactures 
is it? I don't even understand. Is it gluts or glutes? Is it glute in it? And suffers shortages. It scrambles for markets. Glutes. What do you mean gluts? Because you're gluttonous. Oh yeah. Well, we don't know. No, um, glutes or glutes. Yeah, it creates. No, it's your glutes, your glutes muscles, your muscles in your bum. That's why uh, so many people um, in their heyday of capitalism are just so perky. Yeah, massive glutes. Yeah. It creates rivalries, and every now and again, it flares into warfare. So basically, it says, but if we want to install general prosperity instead of poverty, security in place of instability, and cooperation in place of competition, you know, basically a better world. How do we overturn this capital? How do we overturn capitalism? What do we replace it with? Where do we start? And how should we organise? Um, so the spoiler is, you know, the, a Welsh independent socialist republic, and we're going to talk about that. If not in this episode, then maybe another episode when we talk about independence. Yeah, we're, we're um, well overdue for that. So I don't think we should talk about, um, you've got the Marxist interpretation of history, and then you've got the feudal order, and they talk about how society essentially develops through historical periods. Mm. I mean, what do you, is there anything new you'd like to bring up in these, these two pages? I mean, you've got the basic law and the law of class conflict, which... Um, so, yeah, um, I've highlighted some stuff. Uh, during the law, uh, law of class conflict, it says, as regards to the struggle, the prime objective of the ruling class is to retain control of the government. It opposes social change. So I wasn't sure if that meant we should completely get rid of the government entirely. Yes, it does. It does, but then we'd replace it with another, another one, surely. Yeah. So, yeah. Can't, can't be withered away. No. In terms of actually... You wanted to talk about the Welsh history element, didn't you? Uh, yeah, that's more in the feudal order bit, though. Skip the uh, skip the class. Well, we can skip the Marxist interpretation of history because we've just explained it. The history of all hitherto existing societies is a history of class struggle. There it is. Yeah, so the feudal order, um, it basically says in this section that Wales never got to develop feudalism while England did. So, And that was despite the efforts of Llewellyn ap Urwith and Llewellyn ap Griffith. Good pronunciation. Thank you. Uh, one year of Welsh learning class. So, and I always thought that, you know, with some uh, Welsh nationalist rhetoric, they always kind of, you know, harked back on as being... Golden age of kings. It is, but at the same time, they were desperately trying to uh, implement feudalism, but they never took... So it basically says that both of them were, in essence, like tribal chieftains uh, and not really monarchs like you'd have in England or France. But then um, I think it goes on a bit later to say, due to this, that the Welsh nation could never, never develop a bourgeoisie class or bourgeois class. So that had, in a sense, snuffed any idea of independence out, ironically. Yeah, so he basically says that, you know, it's wrong to sort of think about um, the golden age of like England doing things like that as being some sort of like egalitarian... Um, you know, golden age because basically these guys were sort of robber barons out to sort of sit, like, look after their own patch and sort of have their own sort of peasants working on the land. Um, so, oh yeah, so capital. The next se- section: capitalist, English, and Anglicised. So this is what you're talking about. So basically, if in the in the broader side of history, you know, like history goes through cycles, and each society will spring up based on what the dominant mode of production, what the economy basically is and what is made and things like that in society. So, uh, so what they say is each social system contains with it the seeds of its own destruction. So gold, silver That's and bronze... That's very poetic, I thought. That gold, silver and bronze were the seeds of the new system that replaced feudalism. The gold, silver and bronze of the merchants and manufacturers who prospered because of the stability of feudalism. So basically after feudalism, um, you have this, you know, rising, you know, wealthy traders and financiers, you know, you've got basically what was called the class called the bourgeoisie and this sort of led to civil war between the old landed class 
and the emergent sort of mercantile traders, the bourgeoisie. There was, of course, the English Civil War in the 16th century and the French Revolution of 1789. And and in that sense, we, I mean, obviously, socialists and communists today, we all say, oh, he's bougie, he's bourgeois, petty bourgeois, as a term of abuse, you know, is basically you know, someone that's middle class and you have yeah. middle class tastes. Well, pe- petty bourgeois would be middle class, bourgeois would be like factory owners. But who I don't see many of <laughs> in my social circles. But, um, well, speak for yourself. Yeah. Um, but basically, Marx said, you know, in, in the in the grand sweep of society and history, the bourgeoisie have basically been revolutionary and progressive because. You know, he, he describes the transformation of society by the bourgeoisie. He says the bourgeoisie, whenever it has got the upper hand, has put an end to all feudal patriarchal idyllic relations. It has piteously torn asunder the motley feudal ties that bound man to his natural superiors and has left remaining no other nexus between man and man than naked self-interest than callous cash payment. So it basically, it said it gets rid of like religious fervour, uh, like chivalrous enthusiasm of like sentiment, um, you know, in, in exchange for sort of rational, egotistical calculation, it says it changes. So basically, it just means that they they just swept away the old feudal society and replaced it with sort of cap, you know, capitalism essentially. And so they write in the pamphlet. Then it's not infrequent nowadays to hear intelligent and cultured Welsh people speaking of the Welsh middle class and its regrettable or praiseworthy influence on the Welsh schools. Drama in Wales, broadcast in the language applied Cymru. So depending on which side of the political spectrum you're on, you know, Labour types moaning about Welsh, middle class Welsh speakers, and middle class Welsh speakers obviously don't have a go at themselves because they they don't understand it. They they won't see it. No. Um, so basically, but what they say is the truth of the matter, and this is why people people always wonder like why is Welsh society like why is Welsh national identity, and why haven't Wales didn't Wales have any national institutions? Basically, why isn't Wales like Scotland? And here's the reason: it's because Wales doesn't really well. It, in 79 Wales doesn't have and never has had a proper middle class that regarded Wales as its own fortress it has never had a nationalistic bourgeoisie and so in order to show clearly that Wales has been totally deprived of such a class one can't do better than quote a few additional sentences from Marx's famous description of it as found in the Communist Manifesto of 1848 so the bourgeoisie during its rule doing its rule of scarce 100 years has created more massive and colossal productive forces than have all the preceding generations together. So subjection of nature's forces to man, machinery, application of chemistry to industry and agriculture, steam navigation, railways, electric telegraphs, clearing of whole continents for cultivation, you know, creating canals, things like that. So what they say is plain, even to those who know nothing of the history of our country, that Wales has never possessed a native indigenous class of this kind. Um, jealous of its own ter- own territory, you know, creating sort of capitalism in Wales to enrich themselves. Because basically, what is you know, he says that if they had, the history of Wales would be entirely different. A self-conscious and self-confident Welsh bourgeoisie would have been hard at work throughout the nineteenth century, building linguistic, cultural, political, and economic barriers around Wales to protect it as a market and as a quarry of raw materials and human resources for their own use. And as a result. The future of the Welsh language would be as secure as the future of any other European language. Wales's contribution to modern European civilization would have been as great as that of other small nations, such as Denmark, Norway, Czechoslovakia. We'd have a parliament, a host of national institutions of international repute, universities, museums, art galleries, centres of science and technology. And they said, instead, instead, we've got a handful of British-oriented abortions 
some of them scarcely worthy of the adjective provincial. But most important of all, a Welsh bourgeoisie would have created a Welsh proletariat stronger and more self-confident than the one we have today, because in all probability the Welsh working class would have been less debilitated by the depression and imperialism. I found that bit quite funny because I guess as communists they naturally want to overthrow the bourgeoisie but what they're saying is like essentially it was needed for Wales to create a strong identity and become a stronger nation in terms of you know building up um, from extracting resources and enriching the country Absolutely. but then they were going to knock it down anyway so yeah but it, it, it harks back to what Calvin um, said in our economics podcast precisely this and what Tom Nairn said as well basically the people that developed Wales, generally speaking, weren't from Wales. Because of the way Wales developed under situations of colonialism, um, you know, it developed to provide for a British bourgeoisie um, and to provide raw materials. Britain, it didn't, wasn't, if you had a national bourgeoisie, they would have been developing Wales. You did have, um, so Welsh engineers uh, who aspired to be anglicised. Um, so, you know, they did end up, you know, it weren't so much homegrown, but they just ended up in England. Uncle Tom's. Yeah. Okay, so basically, in, in the event, the people who start, you know, developed capitalism in Wales were either English in origin, you know, notably the early ironmasters, um, or Welsh people, you know, many of the early coal owners and, you know, mine owners were Welsh. Um, but he says, you know, they swiftly became anglicised, as you said, Nathan, in speech and loyalty. He said, true, in their younger days, some of the Welsh liberal capitalists did toy with schemes of whole home rule, but their Welsh nationalism was, in other words, I can't turn over this like the spare oh. time hobby of uh, capitulant and successful men. Corpulent. Oh, is it <laughs> corpulent? Oh, I can't have it um, yeah. So basically, the class interests of Welsh capitalists resided in the British state and empire, not Wales as a discrete entity, and that had a massive. Um, so you know, the capitalists of Wales didn't need to create their own national market. They didn't need to erect linguistic and state barriers of their own didn't need to consciously create the Welsh nation state which is what happened which is what national capitalists did in every other country of Europe essentially Um, Scotland or as he said all the other small nations that's what he said before like the difference between Scotland and Wales is when it joined the union uh, you know, it had a, yeah, it had established you know its own like banking sector yeah. and very much you know absolutely it had its own institution because you know, when was it the seventeen hundreds and at that time you know that's where you have like all the famous Scot Scottish engineers and scientists because by that time they managed to develop um, develop a bourgeois class or absolutely. have a, a capitalist state that could provide for it. Wales never had that, so Wales seldom got it, and that's why. The Scots have got these separate institutions now, separate legal systems, separate education system, um, and that's why Scotland is politically far, far more advanced than Wales because you know the because of the way it developed. Um, okay, so then he talks about the, then talk skipping forward. Okay, we're we're flying through history here, yeah. uh, cooking on gas. So basically, Welsh life in the nineteenth century was led by a petty bourgeoisie, you know, not the bourgeoisie. So um, Shop, shopkeepers, yeah, dentists, <laughs> craftsmen, farmers. So you know, not investors, industrialists, and entrepreneurs. Um, so he says the petty bourgeois created in Wales the equivalent to England's civil war, the Methodist revival. So this goes on to this, you know, the, the non-conformists who've got like a, a bit of a central part to play in anything you ever read on Welsh history. Um, so the non-conformists founded democratic religious institutions in every part of Wales, but they didn't want or win a parliament on Welsh soil. So he, he says these revivalists, these non-conformists, 
Um, he names them as well. Names and shames. Names and shames. These are the people you think you know, really d- dour old blokes, always wore black. You know, didn't like drinking on Sundays and things like that. No, there's Anne Griffiths there. Uh, he says they weren't proud and fearless Welsh patriots, but respectable, servile, and over-religious Britishers. Theirs was not a Welsh patriotic revolution. It was a religious revolution, English in inspiration and divinity. Its language was Welsh only because the ordinary people of Wales spoke no other language. And this is important. He says it wasn't by defying England that these social, religious and cultural leaders took um, care of their interests and furthered their social, political and religious aims, but in fact by becoming more anglicised and Britannicised, not through establishing an independent Welsh state, but by crouching closer still in the embrace of the British state and in payment for their loyalty and for leading the Welsh people along the same servile path they are awarded by a handful of with a handful of petty privileges petty offices and petty concessions in the sphere of religion education and culture a miserable but apt recom- recompense for a petty bourgeoisie so basically the uh, Welsh liberal class uh, sold the Welsh people out, which is something that's uh, the key theme in recurring, Simon... recurring theme in this. Yeah, one eternal well. recurrence. It's also in Simon Brooks' book, which we hope to get around to soon. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, I, I guess this can be classed as our first book review, and it's appropriate that it's only a book of about ten pages long. Yeah, there's pop-ups um, and pictures as well, so um, something for everyone. I mean, pretty scathing about the Welsh elite. Wouldn't want to be in their shoes. No, not right now. now. Um, probably pro- no, because they probably seem a really dour, boring lifestyle of just praying and. Um, well, this is the thing, isn't it? It's just the, how religion was used to uh, accommodate the Welsh people for the the petty bourgeois interest. It's just so boring. Oh yeah, so you, we'll skip over this part because we've talked about this in our first Welsh language episode. Um, the third historical aim of the Welsh petty bourgeoisie was to provide an educational system, which would thoroughly anglicise their children thus enabling them to take full advantage of the civil and political privileges of the British state and of the many opportunities for the acquisition of wealth and for getting on in the world that England created in the heyday of the Industrial Revolution and the Empire. So, ironically enough, it was the treason of the Blue Books that we talked about that awakened in the Welsh nonconformists their insatiable desire for an English education. So, the treason of the Blue Books sort of radicalised them and kindled patriot- like Welsh patriotism for the first time ever. But, you know, the most important outcome was of, of all that was that the nonconformists set to work from that period until the present day to provide, from primary school to university, the very educational remedy recommended by the authors of the Blue Books, you know, basically a British education. Mm. Um, but, I mean, that's the thing, really, isn't it, um, in terms of that it worked, that you don't want this life for your children and the only way out of it is a British education. If you want to get ahead, get a British head. Yeah, um, as the old saying goes as the old saying goes but this is just because it touches on something that's in the news at the moment following the industrial revolution you know, the working class being forged in the ironworks coalworks and woollen mills was thoroughly Welsh so you know when we think about like industrial South Wales we forget that originally everyone spoke Welsh and it, part of that was due to massive internal migration from rural Wales because there were no jobs so all the farm workers came from West Wales in particular to industrial South Wales also but, um, how the uh, state got built up because as no doubt everyone knows not very good roads or transport links from South Wales to North Wales so South Wales is naturally connected to London and then North Wales is naturally connected, connected to Liverpool because that's where the industrial hearts grew up so, so at that really point discrete you know, industrial units um, and it's interesting as well because like the people from the rural hinterlands in North Wales moved to North West Wales and eventually to sort of England whereas in Wales the the movement was from West Wales to 
the south and also obviously later on from England and Ireland to South Wales, which eventually anglicised it. But what basically this you know they say in this thing is that at that time, so everyone in Wales basically spoke Welsh. The state officials and people in the church in in English, you know, the Ang- Anglican Church were generally English or so anglicised that it made no difference whether they were Welsh or English. And what you had, you had the danger of national cultural separate separateness aggravating the conflicts surrounding sort of class, so food shortages, landlordism. So you had basically an English-speaking English, speaking English uh, landlord class. Yeah, ruling um, class. Yeah, essentially. Well, this is what Hefter called the cultural division of labour. And on the other hand, you've got a Welsh-speaking sort of working class, basically. And then you've got the Times editorials, which is what they did this week. The Times editorials attest the English establishment's desire to extinguish the Welsh language and to obliterate Welsh nationality, because if they, you know, what they're saying is that if the Welsh language and Welsh nationality had been allowed to sort of dovetail with these nascent uh, social movements at the time, this protest against landlordism and oppression, class oppression, you would have had a full-blown Welsh nationalist movement, essentially. So one of the main things to do was to obliterate the Welsh side of things. Um, so yeah, they, teaching staff excluded the Welsh language from schools. Though sometimes the Welsh language was used in the tense, like throw the kids a bone throw in Welsh, a bone. and then to make them abandon it, essentially. But what's I mean, he said what the most important thing is here is that you know, um, it was the Welsh speakers themselves, a lot of them, that were complicit in this and sort of went along with it, basically, and sort of accepted that Welsh was inadequate. So you basically say you can't keep blaming the English for all these problems because the Welsh were complicit in it because the Welsh speaking nonconformist elite wanted to get ahead and because they believed in that sort of way of thinking. Um, and so basically what they said, I mean, what they wanted to do with these Welsh nonconformists was to participate as fully as possible in the government and the administration of kingdom and empire. You um, wanted a piece of the pie. You wanted a piece of that pie. And these aims were very tightly linked and they were all achieved basically at the end of the First World War, you know, when there was a disestablishment of the Anglican Church. So he said, there was Wales, a complete nation once again, the bitterest irony of 1922 in the history of the nonconformist petty, petty bourgeoisie was that the period during which its deepest desires were realised, the prime ministership of Lloyd George and disestablishment, was also a period of far-reaching change which served to crush its economic foundation in rural Wales and to shatter its political influence in the valleys of the south. So basically just a very a very short-lived yeah. um, period of success because what happened after the sec- First World War was to basically... was was the next period, so we're going to skip ahead, you know, after you know to 1925. Um, by the way, what nothing do you, happened. What do you think? What do you think of the of all that? Just it's just gone like. Oh well, uh, the passages. Hmm. Yeah, like insightful, like almost especially what saying about how the uh, Welsh never developed a bourgeois class, and like something so I guess trivial, set back hundreds and hundreds of years ago, can set you know. The legacy still here. Yeah, the legacy and of, of a country is just insane. Proper, like, uh, you if, know, like if, if... I think we, if we'd been around back then, we would have done our best to become... to start a, a Welsh national sort of mercantile bourgeoisie class. Yeah. Well, I'm still trying to do it now. Still trying. Yeah. We're <laughs> um, shopping in MS. All right, so... Basically, what... I, I mean, th- we're going to start talking about the growth of sort of labourism in the UK. Um, so they say until 20, 1925... And this, this is the growth of nationalism in Wales, really. And um, if you're very into Saunders Lewis and Plaid Cymru, you might not like this bit, because it's pretty 
pretty damning. So again, trigger. Um, <laughs> basically, it says that the year which saw the formation of the Welsh National Party in 1925. So this is finally when a section of the Welsh nonconformist petty bourgeoisie abandoned the Trish, traditional British allegiance of its class. So he says it's hardly surprising that the most prominent and influential members of this small group were intellectuals, since it was only they at the time that were able to discern something more of the past of their nation than was revealed by the education system of the conquering state. But the growth of Plaid Cymru was slow, for the following reasons. 1. The thorough penetration of British imperialist ideology among the members of the class to which they belonged. 2. Their inability to gain the support of industrial workers because of a. Their cultural and academic conservatism and their attachment to the ind- to the individualistic, puritanical, rural ethos of their class. B. The influence of the labour movement, its Englishness and internationalism, sometimes honest, sometimes a front for Britishness, on the working class. So he basically says, Plaid Cymru started its political career as a reactionary party, albeit with a socialist fringe. And just like today, he says, that was mainly made up of refugees from the disintegrating independent Labour Party. So the independent Labour Party was what the Labour Party was yeah. before it was the Labour Party. And as the British Empire dissolved in the post-war years, and as England declined in importance in political and economic terms, there was a growth of national consciousness among the Welsh petty bourgeoisie and the working class. So, you know, this was reflected in, you know, he said this was reflecting the, the growth of Plaid Cymru. So we've led the head just a bit after World War Two there. Nothing happened. No. But... He said, yet the mass of the Welsh people have remained unmoved, if not untouched, by appeals to their Welsh nationality. And he says, part of the explanation lies in the nature of the the party's appeal. It's self-derived from its leader's conception of nationalism. Again, hot potato, the Richard Wynne Jones has written about. In 1923, Saunders Lewis, one of the founding members of Plaid Cymru, presented his nationalism as follows. Another name for nationalism is conservatism. In essence, nationalism and conservatism are one and the same. Now, the national movement is a reaction, an attempt to nurture a Welsh Conservative Party and to safeguard the civilization in which we share. So, as he said, the terminology was unfortunate. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the, he said the obsession with conservatism could hardly have appealed to a Welsh working class determined on change. You know, singing the praises of civilization would find little echo in mining valleys suffering the cruelties of capitalism. So, yeah, I mean, like, I guess now applied uh, under Leanne socialist tries to put a socialist edge to it and like a lot of if not all political parties was actually found by i guess a petty bourgeois class absolutely you know it's seldom rare that you have a working class movement and but you know like the labor party perhaps a bit like by Cymru, they can lean on the working class to say we speak for them but they're only ever used as basically a kind of tool to further pawns yeah pretty much they're pawns i mean a lot now jeremy corbyn is now you know you say like we're for the many but his manifesto would rather send everyone to uni than reverse austerity cuts another hot topic yeah it is hot potato it is. we'll discuss that and if anyone knows anything about uh, tuition fees yeah um i didn't go to uni but... <laughs> <laughs> um all right so they, they talk then you know so after they've got that unfortunate Saunders Lewis definition of nationalism in 1923. And then he says, you jump forward uh, to 1979, and he says, Gwynvor Evans says, nationalism varies so much from country to country, there are nearly as many nationalisms as there are nations, each one taking its character from the nation's history and circumstances. Uh, Gwynvor, I've sort of attacked 
Gwyn Vaughan. He seems like a nice bloke, but he... You're physically assaulted Ro- him. Ro- yeah. Robert uh, and Gareth say, we reject the stagnation definition of nationalism and the second nebulous one. Both are uselessly abstract and ambiguous. For us, nationalism is a philosophy fashioned by an economic class using nationality to establish or maintain a state in pursuit of their own economic, political and social objectives. No Welsh state exists because no class has, in modern history, considered it essential to its class interests. So that's that paragraph there is the exact summary of what we've just been it's talking about. It's pretty damning as well. It's, it's simply because it's not economically relevant that it doesn't exist. I mean, it was just something because, because the, Brit- the Welsh elites could... You know they could enrich themselves through the British state. There was no need to. Yeah. Um, but it's not. It, 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 should this be a good? <laughs> I was wondering whether or not we should have prefaced this pamphlet at the start by sort of divulging our own political allegiances. Um, I don't have any. No. Well, I mean, well, you do get asked this, you know, because I mean, when we first started, one of the things I noticed was that anyone who had a Labour bent, um, you kept criticising. Hey, spoke by Cymru, and then we'd have, you know, we have play people on. Um, and there's this ridiculous thing in Wales that, I mean, you can cut this out of his digression, but no, um, you can cut out, you know, you know, because people think basically if you don't support Labour in Wales and you criticise Labour and you're, you know, then you're in Plaid Cymru. But, you know, Labour are in power and like what sort of moron doesn't want to criticise a party in power just because they sort of agree with them on a couple of ideological points. So I have absolutely no, I would say I have absolutely no um, emotional connection to Wales, probably well, more so than I do to the UK as an abstract idea. But you know, I watch Wales in football. You know, I support Wales. But you know, the idea, romantic idea of nationalism, just, I just, I just don't get it. I mean, it's, it's socialism first and foremost. Um, I should just add that I see the Labour Party as being essentially a British nationalist and warmongering party. So the pamphlet sums up. You know, the pamphlets are proxy. Basically, henceforth, if anyone asks me what I believe about it, I'm just going to wave, wave, wave the pamphlet at people. Just sort of, you've photocopied it online, you're just going to go around handing it out. Yeah. It basically rejects cultural nationalism and it rejects labourism as well. So that's up. Well, Which my is us, I guess. Yeah. Um, okay, Although so, Leanne would, if you still want to come on, you're more than welcome. Yeah, Leanne's a legend. Um, <laughs> uh, all right, so basically, um, they, have a go, they have a pop at Saunders Lewis, they have a pop at Gwynvor Evans. Um, and so then he says, you know, meeting the needs um, of the common people in Wales or England is another matter entirely. This can't be done by the British state without transforming its very foundations, changing from a system based on exploitation and production uh, for profit to one producing for use in a people's commonwealth. So this is key, and it's about the British welfare state, which we've talked about briefly in the past. I mean, because welfare, wealth, the welfare state is basically like a fetish of the British Labour Party, and that oh, like um, Ken Loach loves the it, Ken Loach was like the spirit of forty-five or yeah. whatever. Um, it turned out right. The state just loved everyone, so they provided. Yeah, them. They were just kind. Yeah. They just turned out they were kind. They're like, oh, to be fair, they just been through a world war. When we rebuild our entire nation, not for the interests of capital or big business, just, just for you, because yeah. we care. Weirdly though, it's like cutting uh, provisions as soon as it costs too much Weird, for people. Um, yeah. Even in its most harmonious and socially acceptable period, from nineteen forty-five to the mid nineteen sixties, you know, the birth of the welfare state. British capitalism failed to eradicate unemployment or to satisfy the requirements of workers and their families in such areas as housing, education, social services. So it neatly sort of skewers this enduring myth about the welfare status and oh, golden yeah. age, which work for everyone. Yeah. Like... <laughs> um, but, you know, and then it gets bleak again. You know, the prospects for the next quarter century at least are no more favourable. History has proved and the future will confirm. Unlike, those cla- unlike other classes... 
those who live by their labour alone have a vested interest in fundamental change, in building a socialist society. And similarly in Wales, only the working class holds interests that are intrinsically in, com- in com- conflict rather, with those defended by the British state. So the issue is whether the mass of the Welsh people should, or indeed can, strive for economic, social and real cultural liberation on a British or European or global scale, or should they add another dimension to one of these, the drive for Welsh socialist republic? And this is what the majority of the... Well, firstly, they have a they have a nice critique of the uh, Wales and the British Labour movement. They do. Uh, this is, and then after that, they learned to play Cymru as well. <laughs> my favourite bit of the pamphlet, this, <laughs> yeah. for sure. This is what we've always... I've highlighted the most as well. She's pretty good. Basically, though. just like a, a smackdown on, yeah. on the Labour Party. It's absolutely fantastic. Um, and it's a useful corrective for those... Because, I mean... Even if you have been, you know, if you are pro-Corbyn because he's a nice guy, I mean, it's very, I mean, what's going to have to happen soon is a discussion on the limits of labourism and parliamentary socialism per se. Because, you know, let's say Corbyn had got in, we would have had to have this discussion. And I think it's important to point out the limits of labourism and particularly the limits of labourism in Wales. So they talk about the development of the Labour Party in Wales, basically. um, Firstly, he points out something that I always bang on about, which is what Lenin uh, pointed out and what, you know, Marx used to, tear his hair out and Engels used to point out when he was in Manchester. The British factor in the British Labour movement is crucial. Britain's position as an imperial power enabled the state's ruling class to buy off the militancy of an oppressed working class and in particular to bribe Labour leaders with money and a comfortable life, status and respectability and limited power at court. And that's because of the privileged position in the empire. So they say, true, the spoils of empire were distributed with less generosity to some parts of the kingdom including Wales and Scotland in the north. But overall, the British working class has not suffered the same poverty and deprivation experienced in those European countries with less expansive empires. I always thought as well that was perhaps key to um, why the poorer regions of England, Wales and Scotland never really kind of uh, politically established themselves because to an extent needs were met. Weren't they? I mean, we live in a really wealthy uh part of the world and like a lot of our immediate needs are met so it was like quells your uh, civil unrest yeah and empire was absolutely key to that you know the the welfare state was built off um well yeah Uh, pretty much and before and before that you know i mean the 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 comparative wealth of the british worker was because you know was based on sort of the enslavement of the south really yeah and Um, and every, every huge society has been built on a disposable workforce. I think that is actually a line for the new Blade Runner film from the oh, trailer. Nice. So go see it. All right. So no, yeah. here he basically sums up the they then sum up the British Labour movement. I mean, it still holds today. The effect of British imperialism on the working British working class has been to nurture economism. So economism is an obsession within the trade union movement with wages and work conditions, the exclusion of such matters as theory and working class history and culture, and that's why you get like trade unions being the most staunch defenders of things like trident of arms production because it's jobs, 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 yeah, jobs, jobs. Yeah. Um, because there's no awareness of like, you know, the, the world outside that, you know, this, this sort of economist uh, outlook. Yeah. No um, matter how, and how much uh, people want to fetishize trade unions and that's a ab- reaction. Yeah. And that, and, and that, but that's absolutely devastating. It's the sort of building of a, a genuine internationalist, like, um, 
socialist sort of mindset because if you've got nationalist trade unions like you have in the UK defending military industrial complex in particular for jobs then how are you ever going to build solidarity with classes and that's it with other other countries particularly other countries with like brown skin people in there are going to get bombed by the their unionized workers that are making these armaments um and that sort of shows this internationalism sort of yeah line to be a load of rubbish like, yeah falls um, apart doesn't it the next element of laborism is reformism which is bargaining in parliament and the workplace for improvements within the capitalist system, not fighting to instill socialism. Again, like welfare state is an improvement, uh, or social democracy is an improvement on a, uh, living in a capitalist state and not a pathway to a socialist one. It's attempting to modify and discipline capitalism and yeah. try to make it more you know more acceptable, but obviously capitalism can't be can't be tamed. Um, it's a harsh mistress. Yeah, the next one is philistinism or philistinism, um, and this is. <laughs> key um this is an aversion to or a sneering contempt for intellectualism and culture of any kind so that's within the labor party and that's you know this like oh you don't want theory so that's what happens in you know when you've got centrist criticizing momentum people saying people don't want to hear grumpsy on the doorstep um and it goes side by side hand in hand rather with this assumption that working class people are a bit thick and don't care about anything and finally is british nationalism which obviously permeates the labor movement a fear or dislike of foreigners and an ignorance or animosity towards Welsh, Scottish and Irish nationhood. And they talk about anglicisation here in the labour movement. Say, anglicisation has helped enormously to infuse Wales with Britishness, thus further exposing the Welsh people to these tendencies under imperialism. Certainly, these influences was not would not have gained much currency in a Welsh working class conscious of its history, determined to preserve its language, culture and national identity. So, you know, you have Welsh people now, especially in the South, um, will identify as being British so when aspects come up about preserving the Welsh language or Welsh language schools is you know sometimes they'll automatically be against it but it, this is why they're saying why there was no Welsh equivalent of James Connolly there was no you know um, there was no equivalent of John McLean as there was in Scotland you know there wasn't a John not, McLean John McLean not the diehard uh uh, Why haven't we got a Welsh diehard um, trilogy? Well, that's the joke, isn't it? Diehard is just a Welsh. Oh yeah, it was a Welsh, a Welsh concept. concept. Yeah. Um, but so you know, but the point is, in Scotland and Ireland, you do have sections of the labour movement and the organised working class that think of themselves as Scottish and Irish, whereas in Wales, because of the influence of the anglicised British labour movement, that never happened in Wales. Um, it just didn't happen. Um, so instead, the majority of Welsh working people have since nineteen eighteen given their allegiance to the political party established and sustained by the British trade union movement, which we just established as reactionary, the British Labour Party. Naturally, this party has embodied and reflected these tendencies fertilised by imperialism, um, British nationalism, economism, reformism, philistinism. Yeah, when um, the Labour Party was first established and World War One came around, uh, they immediately sold out the working class. Of and, course, uh, social fascism. Yeah. Um, guess what the largest uh, pre-World War II um, labour march was in the UK. Guess what it was Me about? or the listeners. Well, oh, we'll give you a gap, so we'll leave it for a bit. <laughs> Have a think, and then I'll say what I think. I reckon it was uh, to keep black people from taking white people's jobs. Absolutely. It was support by the British labour movement for striking white workers in South Africa who were striking to 
make sure the coloured labour didn't enter the workforce and undercut them. And Mr. Keir Hardy was in that crowd marching alongside the uh, marchers. Keir so, Hardy. Yeah. I hope nobody on the left fetishises Keir Hardy. No, at luckily all. they don't. But it's an interesting corrective, you know, and it's an interesting. Uh, well, I'll tweet that article out. Um, but it's an interesting example of the sort of imperialism that's always infected the British Labour movement. So, but what they said is, you know, um, the grip of parliamentary cretinism, which is, you know, a term coined by Leninism, on the British Labour movement was hugely reinforced by the debacle of the 1926 general strike. She basically says 1926, after 1926, the Labour Party became terrible. Sort of said it had a brief moment in the sun before that, where it was sort of led by and infiltrated by basically militants, which it was, especially in South Wales, you know, the real radicals were involved. But he says, basically then, after the 1926 general strike, the very trade union leaders who'd led the working class um, to defeat used that aborted display of workers' power to discredit revolutionary and militant trade unionism. Um, so the trade union bureaucracy preferred to work with Labour governments to win concessions rather than change society fundamentally. It's got a sniff of the power. So symbolic of this degeneration was the dropping of workers' control of industry as an ex, uh, explicit objective of the Labour movement in favour of state capitalist bureaucracy back in 1932. But again, this is something that you know the Labour Party will always lean on. They always lean on the welfare state. This um, 19, you know, 1945, you know, fetishism, and then before then, like we were born out of trade unions and workers. And then the reality is, it's just man, like, Owen Jones keeps going on about unions, unions, unions. Like there's no. There's no you, you see in the writings even of like you know moderate like you know well respected leftists in the UK like this complete refusal to read what like anyone else, particularly Lenin and Marx have actually said about the British Labour movement and the huge limitations of the British trade union movement, um, the how imperialism sort of infected it and retarded it and stopped it from being truly revolutionary. But they won't. I know there are some people that are aware of that, but most of them just... Well, like, oh, no. I think they're probably on the payroll. And they, they just go trade unions are inherently I mean, you can write a book on the establishment if you've got an insider view in there. It's, uh, um, okay, so basically what's interesting here, I think, um, they say why Wales has become so important to the Labour Party. Um, so they say the integration of Wales into the British Labour movement um, required additional urgency after... The, uh, acquired, rather, an additional urgency after the 1931 general election. Labour was decimated in England while Little Wales supplied half of the new Parliamentary Labour Party. So obviously, you know, a bit like Scotland and Wales today, so obviously any area of Britain which could guarantee enough Labour MPs to offset a complete Tory majority in England, which is what Wales did in 1950, 1964 and February 1974, should not be encouraged to opt out of the Westminster game of musical chairs. And so what's interesting here then, they've got Welsh workers and home rule, so it's almost like a national, like an alternative history, what might have been. So, you know, they give some examples of when you know, Welsh radical leftists have argued for some form of Welsh national representation. So the early leaders of the South Wales Miners' Federation, you know, called for a Welsh parliament um, after World War One, And, you know, liberals and pacifists revived the Home Rule issue and basically all major Welsh labour organisations declared in favour. So you said the North and the South Wales Labour Federation, the South Wales Miners' Federation, North Wales Quarrymen's Unions... Um, at the same time, um, these Labour home rulers, especially on the left, had no use for classless nationalism. So, you know, so Morgan Jones, later the independent Labour MP for Caffilly, warned, the Labour movement must be careful lest home rule should come to be regarded more as an end in itself than as the means to the ends of social reconstruction emancipation from economic thraldom. So basically saying there's no point changing to a Welsh 
Welsh independent Welsh state if it's just going to be replacing an English boss with a Welsh one, which is exactly what James Connolly said. Yeah. Um, and so in 1918, militant miners agent George Barker explained more fully in Welsh Outlook. I mean, this is so prescient. Why not go for the real essential thing, a parliament for Wales? This would fire the zeal of every Welshman. Devolution is bound to come, and the sooner the better, and a real live Welsh party would hasten it. Why should Wales go cap in hand to England for everything she wants? A Welsh national party would win the support of Welsh workers. If it supported miners' ownership and control of the mines, steel and tin plate working workers owning the mines and so forth we want economic freedom sweet ample homes for the people with plenty of garden space and a parliament in wales that people can govern themselves so i mean think think of the alternative route that would have happened if um firstly if there had been a stronger welsh national you know welsh national bourgeoisie and accordingly a strong strong sense of welsh national identity amongst sort of the welsh proletariat during that time but the thing is there clearly was what could have happened, for example, you could have had people break away from the Labour Party um, and set it up, a Welsh National Labour Party. And I think they say that, actually. They should have been... They say, basically, that you could have had, feasibly, a Welsh National Labour Party um, later on, which would have been... Um, yeah, so he said, a Welsh National Labour Party, as advocated by E.T. John, David Thomas and others, might well have gained popular support in the 1920s. And that could, you know, a left-wing Welsh National Party could have worked basically in the south. He said instead, you know, Plaid Cymru, which arrived in 1925, alienated most of the potential working-class support for Home Rule. Um, and going back to those guys that, you know, within the Labour Party that were advocating Welsh Parliament earlier, um, they basically said uh, the Labour Party didn't even try to take control of the Welsh Home Home Rule movement, um, a task they could have accomplished with ease. Instead, the reins were left in the hands of Liberals a few landowners, anti-socialist non-conformists, local government empire builders and romantic intellectuals, thereby ensuring the movement's collapse in early 1920s. So basically they're saying Labour, if they wanted to, could quite easily have taken the home rule thing and ran with it, and ran with it. but instead they just let it collapse. And he said, ironically, one of the biggest stumbling stones for home rule unity was the fear of some North Walian reactionaries that a self-governing Wales would be dominated by the Bolsheviks of the South. Which would have been absolutely awesome. It would have been. Um, Gulags in uh, after Paul's call. Like. That's right. Um, yeah, so basically... the um, Open air gulags. But, but they're saying about, you know, um, how the Labour Party sort of, you know, nixed home rule back in the day and, and how, you know, a left-wing movement, if Plaid Cymru hadn't been dominated by Welsh-speaking conservatives and if... Sad as Lewis, that, like, hated socialism. Yeah, I mean, it, I mean, just think what might have been, you know, a, a, a distinct Welsh National Labour Party in the 20s. Um, go back in time uh, and do that. Um, so, and then he says, even today in the 70s, as the Anglicisation of Wales brings Toryism in its toe, which is exactly what's happening now, he says the Labour Party is too British, too centralised, too bureaucratic and too corrupt and bankrupt to appreciate the need for a Welsh state or a devolved parliament for the sake of Labour as well as socialism. Labour's failure to protect working class communities and defend the Welsh language and identity has sapped the party's course of strength and inspiration. Far worse, it set back the cause of socialism by leaving the Welsh people more exposed than ever to right-wing propaganda, philistinism and British nationalism, which is something that happens today. Like, it's very prophetic there. Well, but yeah, because like, you've, got, you've got Labour people now who clearly are against the idea of like a Welsh national media of, of more powers to the Welsh Assembly. What I mean ostensibly because of like uh, socialism you know that's their excuse but what happens is like people get so alienated and, and and so bound into this british cultural world that you know what you're doing you're 
you're ruining the cause of socialism. You're encouraging sort of Toryism. So, what does he say? The other thing they say about Labour is, uh, <laughs> okay, here he goes. In many parts of Wales, Labour is degenerating into a creaking electoral machine cranked by naive idealists, Trotskyist infiltrators, petty careerists, usually lecturers or barristers, lazy or corrupt councillors, arrogant English settlers and native Uncle Toms. It's MPs flattered by the Westminster press lobby. <coughs> Stephen King. Uh, and, uh, and unknowing English socialists as left-wing internationalist rebels are centralist British nationalist place-seekers almost to a man. Owen Smith! <laughs> <laughs> because in the past it enjoyed the allegiance of the Welsh working class, Labour has, more than any other party, helped the British state towards one of its early aims, namely to wipe out the identity of the Welsh nation by integrating Wales into Britain, by failing to counteract the economic and ideological forces which undermine the Welsh language and identity, Labour has done much of capitalism's anti-Welsh work for it. The greatest service to socialism in the Welsh working class that could be rendered by those Labour Party activists who fall outside the categories above, who Williams, um, is this. They should, of course, continue the struggle for socialist policies and greater party democracy, but be under no illusions that the left would take and maintain the con- uh, would would take and maintain control of the party. I mean, and this is what's happening now. Uh, that even a left-wing manifesto would ensure a general election victory, or even if it did, that the heralded left Labour government of the future could legislate for socialism. They should argue against all manifestations of British nationalism within that left-wing movement, and argue uncompromisingly for the Welsh language and for Welsh state. Or socialist republic, absolutely dropping some yeah, knowledge and science there. there. Like, um, all right, should we just the next? Basically, the, the the conclusion of the pamphlet is about essentially independence, and we've run over an hour, so we could do a two part. We can we? do a two parter, uh, or we can save it for our episode on independence. Um, but there's a couple of other nuggets. Um, which I want to talk about, and it's about firstly, it's about the um, the British. What they start doing, they start making the argument for an independent Welsh socialist republic. And one of the main things is that this is what Tegid actually has said uh, in the previous economics episode. This is on page nineteen of the pamphlet. He says one of the main challenges of breaking out of the ideological straitjacket of you know Britishness is constant fears, objections like Wales can never afford to run itself that we're dependent on state handouts, we're kept afloat by English charity. And as British nationalist and anti-Welsh language MP Neil Kinnock once declared, we are a nation that can't pay its bills. So he basically said that Wales is a nation, in, this is Neil Kinnock now, a nation in deficit dependent on the generosity, not you know, not necessarily the spontaneous generosity, of the taxpayers of the rest of the United Kingdom, which because of the deficits run by Northern Ireland and Scotland, means the generation, generosity of the people of England... Um, actually means what's he on about basically he's just um he's basically saying that the home counties um oh yeah where so many south wales valleys mps reside subsidizes the industrial and agricultural regions of the rest of britain so basically saying and that's an unbelievably appalling understanding of like the, the british state and how it works and he also says it's a it's unbelievably ignorant because i mean there's labor mps who have no idea about what the labor theory of value is basically he's saying like the labour theory of value is that labour is a source of a commodity's value. So, a commodity, I know, like a microphone, a laptop, you know, a bookshelf, uh, a TV, is given value by the amount of labour that basically put into it. You know, this it sort of becomes capital, and you know, basically, he says the value of work applied to commodity by a worker 
is generally greater than the wage paid to sustain the work and his family. So the surplus value extracted by their employer realizes itself in profits. Anyway, what he's basically saying is that the profit, the, the the success of the British state is basically based on the value. The, 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 the success of any capitalist state. Yeah, but it's, yeah. But it's based on the indus- industry of like Wales and the other peripheral areas. These people are pouring, you know, they've built, it's the Welsh mines basically like steelworks mm. that built the UK basically. And he says that the industry at the time is no longer true now, but they're saying basically that the, the Welsh industries are essentially create value there yeah because the labour is so but, cheap that the profit margins will get better so they yeah and manufacturing you know it's, it's, it says like um, capital is you know they say the power of capital has become geographically concentrated centre of capitalist power hence political power is the south east of England um, and aside from that is in London but he said the south east of England only 34% of the working population are actually involved in producing wealth in agriculture manufacturing mining things like that but the main remainder are mostly in jobs which David Graeber would refer to as bullshit jobs, um, you know, services, administration, things like that. Whereas in the rest of the United Kingdom, which is apparently subsidised, you know, the wealth producing proportion of the workforce is much higher. Um, so anyway, basically it says Kinnock is turning socialist economics on its head. So who's sub- subsidising the workers of Tyneside, Merseyside or South Wales? The Stock Exchange? Or the uh, Barry St Edmunds Banker? Is that where they live? Yeah, that's where they live. Um, in their caverns. Like. But this is the point. He says, the simple truth is that working people everywhere maintain and sustain the whole of society. It's like the IWW thing. And it has the pyramid. And it's amazing. On the top, it says, like, it's like a priest to things. And it says, like, we... No, so it's capitalists at the very yeah, top. Yeah, capitalist class It says, we rule you. Mm. And then priests and politicians at the middle. And they say, we fool you. Mm. And then um, there's the police and the army... And then they say, we shoot you and kill you. Mm. And then it's the workers at the bottom and they say, we feed all, we provide for all. And that's absolutely true. Um, anyway, um, what Capitalism do you want to do? is one big uh, pyramid scheme. Do you, want to, um, do you want to wrap it up there and we'll do a two-parter? Yeah, I think a two-parter would be good because we've only got about halfway through this. And it's a really good pamphlet. <laughs> don't want to do an injustice to the pamphlet, do we? No, we don't, to be honest. This um, is absolutely amazing. Well, right, so we'll do this part one, Socialism for the Welsh People, and what we'll do, we'll combine, we can maybe combine the Socialism for the Welsh People. So we've we've talked about like the, the problems and their analysis of Welsh society like up to now, up to 1979, and then the next one, when we talk about independence, we can incorporate the... we we'll use their so, framework. To their remember. framework to, you know, because um, it's like Connolly said, you know, what's the point in independence if it's not if it's not socialist, if it's not creating a new just society. All right, so you've come to the end of another amazingly insightful uh, episode in which I've just pretty much read out from a pamphlet. Um, any any shout-outs? We have got a lot of shout-outs. So um, as Dan mentioned earlier, we're trying to get better equipment. So uh, earlier this week, we started a crowdfunder. And already, can you believe already, it is 33% of the way funded. Amazing. So I'm going to shout out to... Thank you so much for everyone who's given us money. It's so yeah. nice, so nice right. to be we'll, like. we'll name the, the heroes. Yes, please. So Sarah Morse. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you very much. Gareth Price. Thanks. Price Price is right. You gave some cash. Thanks, Thanks Gareth. Gareth. Lloyd Roderick. Cheers, Lloyd. Thanks, Lloyd. Joseph Allen. Thanks so much. Thanks, Joe. Uh, Hayden King. Thanks, Hayden. King of our hearts. And yeah. Anonymous as well. Thank you, Anonymous. Yeah, it's probably Batman. Yeah. And also, shoot, I got a shout out to our patrons who uh, give us a few, few yeah. quid every week, which always goes down really well, because that so helps nice like, uh, cover for train costs and 
trying to get like uh, we're actually gonna have a plan to eventually get all our patrons tattooed on our back yeah yeah. so thanks to Rob you're with Richard Lee Ian Alex Reese, Seymour Owain Kieran Mary Christian Brownie Nick and Leah so you're all fantastic people. Uh, thanks people I'm gonna give a shout out to my mum as well because uh, I don't know if you know you're not a nerd like me but do you remember as a kid uh, Nintendo SNES yeah so Nintendo are releasing uh, a mini SNES mini. It's about the size of your hand, nice. but it comes preloaded like twenty two games. Nice. But they only did a limited run, so they sold out everywhere. And on the Nintendo website, it sold out less than an hour. Amazon's gone. Argos is gone. You know, but uh, my mum managed to secure ah. the last one in Gaming Bridgend. So, Amazing. So big shout out to my mum for funding. Like, my eternal recurrence of just playing Nintendo, even <laughs> as I'm near 30. She's like, do I want him to go out and socialise more? Or yeah. No, just, just bad people. Should I just indulge him? Why don't you play the games you've been playing for about the last 20 years of your life? Yeah, that's good. Yeah, um, what about you? Uh, Shout-outs oh, to, obviously, to my amazing family, um, to my new little niece, Harriet. Oh, congratulations. Um, yeah, so well done to my sister and brother-in-law amazing job and welcome to the family Harriet um, family what else I was going to give a shout out to someone else um, but I can't I can't remember who it was I even like in the in the car over I was like I've got to give this shout, shout out for Hugh for being so insightful last week um, and shout out to everyone who's promoted us um, basically guys you need people we just need to keep being you know promoted I'm bummed yeah because, but no because I mean I think you know I mean they've shut down was that one show like the Wales Report, or whatever? I mean, there's actively. I mean, they're actively making it so there's less, even less Welsh analysis than than there has been previously. So, uh, Hugh um, Edwards gonna have to come to us for a job eventually. <laughs> um, so what we want to do, event? I mean, some of our grand plans are um, <laughs> when we first started this. But no, but I mean, what have we been going for a year actually? Nearly. That's nuts, isn't it? Nine months, I think. Yeah. But what we wanted to do, we wanted to do. I mean, if we get. You know, we want to get people on board as well. We want to, you know, we wanted to do like, uh, like a news wipe, not like Charlie Brooker, but like um, and like a short roundup of the week's news in uh, Welsh news, an actual, an actual read of the papers, an actual. But you know, we just haven't got time to do anything like yeah. that. We wanted to actually, and we still want to do like actual cover, actual breaking news stories. So you know, we need go, a video camera, really, go and interview people. Um, obviously Nathan and I can't do it at the moment because we're not in shape well I'm yeah. not um, I'm not either and I refuse to go on camera until I'm at such time as I'm back in shape yeah. I also um, my body's completely fallen apart um, so if there's anyone listens who is like a physiotherapist or like a chiropractor or a podiatrist um, if that's you, what the uh, just need, the patron is really it, for it's just, just to fix my broken uh, body basically which has just been killed from years of football and um that's it really yeah um, shout out to your broken body alright thanks very much for listening guys um, stay tuned for part 2 of the socialism for the Welsh people I hope you can take a lot alright just... right. right. bye take that there's a new hero in town and to stop the evil Lord Duminox from taking over the world you need a soldier with the right tools for the job blast into action with the new shadow cruiser ah! When Duminox attacks, Lone Wolf strikes back. Party's over, Duminox! He's bigger, tougher, and more determined than ever. Cool! He's a hero that was praying for action, but the evil Lord... Lone Wolf! Everybody dies alone, just surrender to the void and burn into infinity! 
sold separately. Locks not included.